Welcome. I'm Uri. And I'm Rifki. And you're listening to Talking Tachlis, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. Welcome to episode number 23. So Rifki, have you been following all the news out of Israel? I mean, it's hard to keep track. There seems to be a lot of things going on simultaneously. I mean, the Iran deal Mm -hmm. was canceled by America. Israel is now clashing with Iranian forces in Syria. Mm -hmm. On this Monday, tomorrow, as we record, uh, the U.S. Embassy is going to be moved to Jerusalem. It's also the anniversary of uh, the, the 70th anniversary of Israel's independence, but also what's known as Nakba Day. And uh, hopefully there won't be violence. When is Yom Yerushalayim tomorrow? I think that's today, actually. Oh, well, happy Yom Yerushalayim. Yes, today is Sunday, the uh, May 13th, as we record. So not to detract from the seriousness of all those other stories, but last night, Israel won the Eurovision Music Contest for the first time in 20 years. Did you watch the video, Ari? I did. All right, so let's, let's play a little clip for everyone. Wonder Woman, don't you ever forget You're divine and he's about to regret So, I mean, it, it is a pretty fun song. It's It has that weird Euro techno right, exactly. thing going on. You can tell on. automatically that it's a Eurovision song because right. of how ridiculous kind of, but in a catchy way, right? I feel yeah. I find myself kind of bobbing my head. I think it also kind of has a little bit of everything. Um, it's, it's very much right place, right time. You know, the chorus starts out, I'm not your toy, you stupid boy. That's a very, like, me too moment mm-hmm. kind of sentiment. I think that's a big part of why it won. Um, let's listen to a little bit of her uh, acceptance speech. This is your stage. This is your moment. Well, how are you feeling? Your vision is moving to She's really good English. Yeah, well, it's it's very sweet. It's it's pretty emotional, I have to say. Yeah. Um, she's I, so genuinely just excited. Very genuine. I love how she says, I love my country next year in Jerusalem, yeah. which is like such a double or at least double meaning right. kind of thing because the, the competition moves the following year to the country of the winning team. So next year it, it will be in Jerusalem. Are they actually going to do it in Jerusalem? Yeah, it's, it's happened before. Really? Yeah. It's pretty cool to think of. I mean, and that that's part of what we think about when we think about what's so beautiful about a modern Jewish state is that sentences like that, that are, you know, from really rabbinic history, from, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years old, a, a phrase like next year in Jerusalem can also be used in a random singing competition in Europe. In is a very actually, current. Yeah, it's, it's pretty beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it is. I agree. That's a nice way of saying it. But another <laughs> element in the room about, oh boy. Uh, about Netta Barzilai is that she is not traditionally beautiful. And I think that's definitely a big part of why she is so popular in this moment, which I think is really cool. And I think 
everybody's really embracing that, in right. a, and I think a, a, in a very positive way. I think actually it's interesting because you, I think you're totally right. She's not, you know, what we think of as traditionally beautiful. My, my first instinct is, is to say, oh, you know, she's um, she's overweight or she doesn't, you know, she's not as thin as who we normally see. But there's actually this uh, movement. I think Roxane Gay, do you know who Roxane Gay is? Rings a bell. Uh, she's like a feminist, I want to say queer black writer and, um, you know, sort of public thinker Mm -hmm. who um, writes a lot. And she's also, I think she's obese. And she writes a lot about sort of um, reclaiming the word fat. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to say fat because we're like, oh, that's so mean. But it's only mean because we think of fat as so bad. Um, And there's a judgment that we associate with it. But she's like, no, I'm fat. Like, that's not a bad thing. It's like saying, like, this is your height. I'm fat. So it's interesting that we, I think, feel so weird using that language. I mean, I have no idea, actually, if I don't want to, I don't want to put any words in Netta's mouth, but I have no idea if she would be uncomfortable with us saying right. that. I think this is a great segue into the main topic we want to talk about today, which is um, Amy Schumer's new movie, I Feel Pretty. Which, disclaimer, neither of us actually saw the film, um, which makes this a little bit harder, but really the, the film is just a prompt for the conversation that I think we wanted to have. Right. So the film I Feel Pretty is about a woman named Renee, played by Amy Schumer, who, while exercising in a soul cycle class, bangs her head in an accident and wakes up believing that she has miraculously become this amazing, beautiful supermodel. She looks at her friends and she says, guys, you won't believe it, but it's still me. And of course, they're like, we know. What are you talking about? She um, becomes much more confident and gets this promotion at work and starts being more creative and really sort of building herself up. She gains a new boyfriend. She's you know, competes in a bikini contest, which is obviously something she never would have been comfortable doing before. And then I, neither of us saw it, but I think based on, this is not a spoiler, based on every review, obviously, as you would imagine, she realizes at the end that she never really changed her body and it's all about confidence and you know, yada, yada, yada. Right. Well, let's listen to some of the trailer. I have a crazy idea. Let's be honest for a minute. No matter how many times we hear, it's what's on the inside that matters. Women know deep down, it's what's on the outside that the whole world judges. You okay? I'm just like dealing with low self-esteem and like- I wanna punch you right in your dumb face right now. Do you have every rib that I have? I've been on all of these sites. No one even looks at the profile. They only care about the picture and I'm sick of it. I've always wondered what it feels like to be just undeniably pretty. Are you okay? You hit your head pretty hard. Wait, that's me. That's me. Oh my God, do you see this? Yes. I'm beautiful. Oh, full spin. The basic premise of the film is that Renee, and not just Renee, but by extension, all sort of regular looking women, is that they are not held back by their looks, but rather their attitude and the way they approach their looks. Um, I also just want to say that the reason we're having this conversation today is because of a friend of the show, Tali, who actually sent us an article called I Feel Pretty and the Rise of Beauty Standard Denialism, which is a a New York Times article from last week. And we, of course, appreciate all submissions from listeners. So uh, thank you so much, Tali. And if anyone else finds something that they think would be interesting for us to talk about, please send it over. So Uri, I think the starting point for this conversation has to be sort of, do you agree with that premise? Do you agree with the premise that women are sort of holding themselves back? And it's not 
not to say the movie suggests this, but let's take it a step further, that it's not society exactly, right? Or it's not men or the shallowness of men or right things like that, but it's really women and their own sort of insecurities. I think there's a lot here, and this is a very dense and complicated subject. It happens to be something that I think about a lot, but at the same time, in the same way that we had to make a disclaimer in the beginning that neither of us have seen the movie, but we're going to talk about it anyway. We're going to talk about the ideas. So I have to make my disclaimer. I am a male. And I think it's uh, more complicated for me to talk about these issues than for it is for you. And that's something that I'm sensitive to and that I'm in this conversation, I'm going to try to be very careful about. And I also want to say that everything that I say are kind of like not my steadfast beliefs, but more just how I'm thinking about this and trying to understand the topic. I think that's fair. And I think what's complicated about these is that they're constantly sort of shifting. I know that I didn't think the same way that I did about this a year ago as I will think about it probably a year from now. But, you know, I think we're we're trying to explore it. And one of the difficult things about this podcast is that we're trying to explore things out loud with people listening. Yes. So um, (laughs) hopefully we don't screw up too bad. And we're going to figure this out together with you guys. (laughs) Well, so, I mean... I think the basic premise, as you said, but to to get it even more fundamental, is that real beauty is on the inside, not on the outside. That's obviously an extremely cliche message. It's also universal. It's also been around forever. And it's also true for the most part, you know, in, in different ways. Um, what I really liked about the New York Times article was that it put into words some of the ideas that I had in my head, but wasn't even able to articulate. I have been reading a lot about this movie, and a lot of the criticism that I had seen before this article was either that the movie is just not very well made, which just criticized it as a movie, not really for what it was about, but more specifically, there's been a lot of criticism of Amy Schumer that she is playing this character who in the world of the movie is so ugly and unattractive and now all of a sudden she she gets a brain injury and she thinks she's beautiful when in fact she is relatively speaking pretty skinny you right. know not really much maybe a few pounds overweight you know whatever right. that means blonde blue eyes obviously wh- white white and so a lot of people criticized her on that on those grounds which i, I don't think is I mean, there's something to that, but this article dismissed that criticism because it basically said the people who are making that criticism are falling into the same trap that the movie itself falls into. And it's it's all in the title of the article, which is I Feel Pretty and the Rise of Beauty Standard Denialism. So I love this concept of, of beauty standard denialism. Like, Rifki, do you want to explain what that means to you? Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you, Uri, that this article really resonated with me. And I think it was able to articulate things that I've been I've been trying to think about and I've been sort of percolating around in my brain. But the fundamental argument that Amanda Hess, who wrote the article, was claiming is that the movie is trying to build this case that beauty standards are sort of artificial and they come from within to a certain extent. And she's saying sort of, that's just not true. We, For some reason, it's really become taboo to admit the truth that expectations for female appearances not only are very real, but they've become even more real. And of course, she talks about social media. She talks about um, what it means to build a personal brand. But what she's basically saying is that nowadays, it's become very popular to say, the reason I do these things, the reason I go to SoulCycle, the reason I get manicures, the reason I wax my legs, the reason I wear you know sexy underwear, none of that is about men. None of that is about impressing my partner, my potential partners, anything like that. It's about me. It's about making me sort of a stronger woman. It's about making me who I want to be. And Amanda Hess is basically saying, we all want to think that's true because there might be something beautiful in that. 
But fundamentally, that's just not true, because it's all stemming from this sort of patriarchal society in which we are conditioned to believe that we will be able to get a more attractive mate if we do X, Y, Z. So just because it also happens to feel empowering, the reason it feels empowering is because of the society that we live in. And one thing I think she says that I think is so powerful, and let me actually just quote this so I don't mess it up. But part of the conditioning of the patriarchal ideal is to make women feel empowered by it on their own terms. That way, every time you critique an unspoken requirement of women, you're also forced to frown upon something women have chosen for themselves. And who wants to criticize a woman's choice? And I actually think that is so powerful because I feel like I kind of have this conversation with people all the time. Like, for example, I'll have a conversation with my friend where she'll say, I have curly hair and I choose to straighten my hair because I think I look prettier. It's not about doing it for another person. It's not about doing it for the date that I have tonight or for a professional meeting that I have to go to. It's because I think that I look prettier. So why shouldn't I do that? Why shouldn't I make that choice? And I think what what I, I can never articulate particularly well, but what I thought she articulated incredibly well is, yeah, maybe you think you look prettier, but the reason you think you look prettier is because of this society that kind of says women look prettier with X and you want to look pretty for Y, so therefore you should have straight hair. If I would be saying that to my friend, I'd be saying, okay, you think you're making a choice. You're not making a choice at all. You're just you're just a pawn in this larger scheme of things. And that's a hard thing to say to anyone, but especially a woman who who feels like she's making an empowered choice. I think to help better frame this question, we have to look at sort of like the history of feminism. I'm not an expert on the history of feminism. I'm sure, Rifki, you know more than I do, but I do kind of like the concept of the different waves of feminism, and I think it helps It helps me understand where some of these different voices are coming from, and you can tell me if you think I'm getting this wrong, but I'm, I'm going to quote Wikipedia, actually. Yeah. And um, they can't be wrong. Right. So here's what Wikipedia says. So, And this is, this is a little taste of all three waves. There are three waves, I, I think, as of now. At least. Right. We start with three waves. Right. So, so here's Wikipedia. Whereas first wave feminism focused mainly on suffrage and overturning legal obstacles to gender equality, like voting rights and property rights, second wave feminism broadened the debate to include a wider range of issues, sexuality, family, the workplace, reproductive rights, de facto inequalities, and official legal inequalities. Second wave feminism also drew attention to the issues of domestic violence and marital rape, engendered rape crisis centers and women's shelters, and brought about changes in custody laws and divorce law. Feminist-owned bookstores, like in, I guess, Portlandia, credit unions and restaurants were among the key meeting spaces and economic engines of the movement. Many historians view the second wave feminist era in America as ending in the early 1980s with the intra-feminism disputes of the feminist sex wars over issues such as sexuality and pornography, which ushered in the era of third wave feminism in the early 1990s. Basically, in a nutshell, um, the easiest way to explain it, and Rifki, tell me if you agree, second wave feminism was more about pure equality and women being treated the same way as men. And a second wave feminist would look at traditional beauty standards and beauty practices as harmful and denigrating to women. So a second wave feminist would be very anti-wearing high heels or a lot of makeup. When we think of things like bra burning, which I think is not, was not a real thing, but it's it's the way many of us sort of Th- have that's these like historical the extreme man. version. Right. Getting rid of the idea of makeup and you know saying you know my body, my choice. Or being right, very anti-pornography. Yeah, and things like that. Right. And then third wave feminism is like I've heard it described as like Beyonce feminism, where it basically says you can embrace 
all of those standards of beauty and and ways of looking at women's and feminine beauty, but own it and present it in a way that is empowering instead of debilitating. And in a way, it's sort of like having your cake and eating it too. You know, people would say in a good way, not in a bad way, but it's like you can be a strong, independent powerful woman but also wear heels and also do your hair and also wear makeup right uh, and mean, also i think second wave feminists many of them would say you should not be a stay-at-home mom and third wave feminists would say you know what be a stay-at-home mom don't be a stay-at-home mom just make sure that you're making the decision for yourself right. and and i think second wave feminists and similar to this article would say you're not making the decision for yourself if you choose to be a stay-at-home mom you're doing it because of side pressures even if you don't even realize you're doing it right One interesting distinction between second and third wave feminism that I've kind of been thinking about is when you compare those philosophies to, let's say, a more traditional religious kind of approach to modesty and dress. So what the traditional, let's say, what our background, a religious person or even like, you know, woman, let's say a principal of a, of a girl's school would say is that you shouldn't dress immodestly. You know, you should be covered up. You should wear a long skirt. You shouldn't act too provocatively, um, because you don't want other people to look at you in that objectified way. You want them to look at you as a person. And I think the second wave feminists would say similar things, maybe for slightly different reasons, but they would say, like, pornography is damaging to women. Women have to respect themselves. They Don't wear high heels. It's going to hurt your your back, your feet, whatever. Like, what's the point? Um, don't do that. It's You're hurting yourself for, for men's you know, pleasure, whatever, um, they would kind of like line up in a way on those kind of things. Whereas a third wave feminist would be the exact opposite. If a, if a religious person would say to, to a girl, wear a long skirt, don't, don't wear something too revealing. That would be seen now by a third wave feminist as like body shaming or oppressive to that girl or that woman. Right. Almost like that's objectification, right? It's objectification to tell women that they have to cover up because that means that women can only be sexual objects and can't be anything else. I think I, what a third-way feminist would probably say is like, do whatever you want to do. If you want to wear a long skirt, that's great. If you want to wear a mini skirt, that's great. But still, I, I think that right. contrast right. is very interesting. So that's interesting. I mean, I definitely hadn't thought of it that way. I thought of first-wave feminism as having more in common with religion of sort of like, okay, men and women are different and that's fine and there are different things about them and they have different characteristics, but, you know, we should respect men and we should respect women, you know, sort of also, but, you know, within their different roles. It does sound like there is some overlap and that is really interesting that there there's something about second wave feminism that is interestingly... Traditional. Yeah, it, that, that's interesting. But at the same time also... I don't know, I guess I, I feel like for me personally, I come down somewhere in between second and third, right? Like I think about some of these women who think that they're really empowering themselves, right? Um, one of the things that the article talks about that um, Emily Hess quotes is there's this model named Emily Ratajkowski. Have you ever heard of her? Uh, I've, honestly, not really until I read this article. Actually, a comedian that I listen to talks about her sometimes. Chris D'Elia mentions her, but that's I didn't know what she looked like until <laughs> I looked at this article. Okay, so um, she... Uh, she's in this movie. She plays Amy Schumer's hot friend, quote, and last year she appeared in a video for Love Magazine wearing lingerie and mittens and writhing in a pile of spaghetti. We can post a link to this video, but just bear Your in mind, discretion advised. it is a very NSFW. weirdly sexual video considering she's on a pile of spaghetti. Um, and with the clip, Love Magazine also published um, sort of, I guess, some sort of mini essay that Emily uh, Ratajkowski wrote 
And one of the things that she said was, to me, female sexuality and sexiness, no matter how conditioned it may be by a patriarchal ideal, can be incredibly empowering for a woman if she feels it is empowering to her. And I think to me, that feels so blind and problematic. You know, her saying like, look, maybe other people find it objectifying and maybe men are staring at this and they're, you know, sort of like, oh my God, I want her. She's amazing. And yeah, maybe they're, they're totally looking at me as an object, but who cares about that? I feel like I'm empowering myself and therefore it is not inappropriate and it is not objectification. And that seems so ridiculous to me. I mean, you can watch this clip. This is not a clip in which a woman is really empowered. This is a a clip of a beautiful young woman, barely dressed, close up, playing this music where I think the only lyrics of the of the song were, oh yeah, or like <laughs> baby, or like something like that. And you're just, you just cringe and you say like, oh, Emily, like, come on, like do something else. Like it, it makes, it makes me sad for her. And it makes me sad for the women or the young girls who read this and say, wow, oh, I can be empowered like this. That's awesome. That That's amazing. I can be empowered, but also boys will like me, right? Because boys love her. So like, you know, ergo, and it, it just makes me really sad. Well, here's here's another way that I was trying to get at this kind of idea. So let's say, you know, you have something like the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, right? And you have like a wet t-shirt contest, which, you know, comes up in the Amy Schumer movie. Mm-hmm. Um, bikini contest, wet t-shirt contest, whatever it was. So here's the question is, where do we want society to be? What attitude is the ideal attitude, right? So I think a second wave feminist would say there shouldn't be a Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. There shouldn't be wet t-shirt contests because that's a disgusting concept and it just completely objectifies women. But what the movie is saying, and I think what as typifying a third wave feminist approach would be, no, the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue is great. Wet t-shirt t- contests are great. But Amy Schumer can, can be on the cover of Sports Illustrated, you know, and she can right. win that wet t-shirt contest and that's empowering and that's amazing and that's beautiful. Right. Because the idea, I think, that they would be saying is all of these women made this choice. They want to be there, right? I remember watching like MTV Spring Break when I was like a kid. When we got cable for the first time, I was probably like 13, 14. It's like they go get down to like Cancun or Miami and it's like a bunch of really drunk, really good looking like 21 year olds and they're disgusting. It's like complete debauchery. And I was just watching and I'm like, this is crazy. But the idea that, you know, third wave feminists would look at this and they would say, look, you know, is this something that I would want my children to be involved in? Maybe not. But it's not It's not bad. These girls are making this choice. Well, I think what they would probably say, to, to be fair to them, would be it's not the actions that are good or bad. It's the way that it's done or the the attitudes that they have. Meaning if they're starving themselves in order to fit into that bikini, that's bad. But if they're embracing themselves and doing it to empower their bodies and their sexuality, then it's great. All, right. all for but them. But the, the counter argument there is a: there's really no way that these people aren't starving themselves, right? As we, it, it's funny. One of the one of the quotes in the article, which I thought was just so sad, was um, talking about models like. Kendall Jenner and Bella Hadid, who talk about how like, oh, they didn't mean to lose weight. Like it just sort of like happened. Like they were busy. They were distracted. They were stressed out. You know, something like that. But they also post images to Instagram of themselves that actually really appear edited to make them look even thinner. So even when sort of women often will say like, I don't know, I don't even know, like these things just sort of happen, but it's not really true. And maybe they're lying to others and maybe they're lying to themselves. And maybe, let me just say, maybe sometimes it is true, but very often, even when like... 
and I, I, I don't want to say I know it for everyone in the world, but I know it from conversations with others and maybe even sometimes a little bit with myself. Like even when you sometimes don't mean to lose weight, you do feel a little good about it. Like it, it, these things are real. And, and I think that this, the second wave feminist argument back against these wet t-shirt contests and a bikini contest feels very real where it's saying you think you're empowered. You think you're making your own choice and you're owning your body and you're owning your sexuality. But look around. <laughs> there are hundreds of horny and drunk guys staring at your bodies and talking to each other about it, right? I might be a bikini model and I think I look beautiful in my Instagram pictures, but read the comments. These men are not saying like, oh, I really admire the way you've been like, you know, waking up for 5.30 a.m. spin class. Like that really takes dedication. Like I admire your work effort. That's not what they're saying in the comments. Right. And I would really actually sharpen that question by saying we've been talking a lot about men objectifying women. But we haven't talked at all about women objectifying men, which obviously I think, I mean, I would say is also an issue, but I would also say not at all to the same degree. So to what extent is that biological? To what extent is that social based on sort of power structures? And that gets into the question of the differences between men and women. And so one, I guess, more traditionalist way of describing a difference between men and women is that men are more attracted when they're looking for a mate, they're more attracted to physical traits or a woman's body and the women tend to be more attracted to non-physical traits it's funny sort of my initial instinct is to say and maybe this isn't very nice and maybe this isn't very true my initial instinct is to say men are more looking for sort of superficial things and men are and women are looking for more substantive things but maybe that's not fair maybe that's not true because well if a woman is looking for a rich guy that's not very substantive right it's hard i mean i generally don't think that most women are looking for that in the same way that men think women are looking for that i think women want a stable life i think that's true obviously when we're talking about any kind of stereotype or generalization, these obviously don't, even for the traditionalists who say that men are this way, women are this way, unless they're just like really obtuse, they would agree that there are tons of exceptions. And this is just like a trend that is a generalization, but clearly does not define every individual. So I want to ask you, Uri, I mean, let's let's make the assumption that this is generally accurate. Men are generally more interested in looking at physical appearances and making decisions about their mates based on that. And women are looking for other things that are not necessarily physical, maybe also superficial, but not necessarily physical. Do you think that's bad? Right. Well, I guess that gets into maybe what we could have as our final question of this discussion, which is there's two things. There is the debating or discussing the way the world is, like are these things biological? Are they societal? Like, what is the just reality? Do they exist reality in the first place? Of, Does it exist? How does it exist? Where does it come from? Those are all reality kind of questions. Like, it is one or the other. We just aren't sure which one it is. And then a totally separate question is, what should it be? And so you could even set aside, like, let's say um, our society um, has too much of an emphasis on superficiality and looks both for men and women, I think that's tough. I mean, I, I do think our society is too superficial. I don't know. We got into this last week with the selling out kind of argument. Like, mm-hmm. why can't musicians just like do it for the sake of the art? Why do mm-hmm. they have to sell Coke and Pepsi? <laughs> I try to be a realist and an idealist at the same time, you know, so I think we can always strive to look for deeper things, for more more substantive things in other people, both men and women. But I also think it's important to keep our expectations in check and keep in mind that we are in reality, which is also why I like the idea of communism and it really resonates with me in in a lot of ways. But practically speaking, I'm a capitalist because I think 
people are going to be looking out for themselves and want to help themselves. So I believe in a system that takes that into it and makes the best of it for society, but with the understanding that people are going to be selfish very often, very uh, yeah, much I, of the I mean, time. I hear what you're saying in terms of practicality of saying like, it sounds like you're a little bit cynical about this and maybe you think it is bad, but you think, you know, maybe there isn't so much we can do to change it. One of the things that comes to mind immediately for me is that this conversation that we've been having is a very heteronormative one, right? We've been talking about the relationship and the objectification between men and women in conversation with one another. But what we haven't spoken about is how that affects relationship between men and men and between women and women. How does that affect affect the way that they kind of make out their physical appearance to be attractive to other men or to other women. I, I, right. I mean, I think that's true. I think something that's really interesting, though, that I've just sort of noticed and perceived, and I don't, again, claim to be an expert, and this is um, anecdotal, but I think what I would disagree about what you just said is that what these somewhat like generalizations that we're talking about are not specifically limited to heterosexual interactions, meaning the generalizations about men apply to gay and straight men, and the generalizations about women apply to gay and straight women, mm-hmm. obviously with tons of exceptions on both sides. But as a generalization, that generalization holds true in both cases. So like a quick example is a friend of mine. Who, is he a listener? Uh, maybe. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, shout out if you are. Yeah. So he was in the closet for a while. I mean, I don't think he himself really thought of himself as gay. He dated women. And it wasn't until much later on, that he came out as gay. I noticed that as soon or very soon after he came out, he went through a transformation. He started going to the gym. His hair was much more put together. Mm -hmm. His clothes were much more put together and fashionable. And I actually spoke to him about it. and, And what he said was that, yeah, I have to attract men now. And so uh-huh. I have to put a lot more thought into my physical appearance because that's what men want. And I thought to me that that blew me away because like, wow, right. that's really interesting because it made me think that maybe there's for the millionth time, these are generalizations. Right. But right. It, this it, is it, an anecdote it, about right. one it, it made me it, it made me think that sometimes, uh, you know, gay and straight men still have a lot more in common with each other than straight men and straight women. The only slight difference is one's attracted to a man, one's attracted to a woman, but it's in the same kind of way. It's interesting because to break that down, it seems like your friend, he is now in a similar camp to straight women in that he's looking to attract men and he's thinking, how do I attract that kind of man? But he's also in the same camp as straight men because he is looking for (laughs) a partner and looking really intensely at that physicality. I do though also want to reiterate what you said that I mean, you said this is a heteronormative conversation, then we kind of expanded it a little bit to to the gay um, conversation. But obviously, everything that we've experienced is a specific thing. And we've only covered a small part of this. This is really, like I said in the beginning, this is us trying to understand this topic and, and think about it and talk about it. And we would obviously love to hear what you guys think. And to help uh, enrich this conversation. But also just to, to bring it back to the Amy Schumer movie, do you think a movie like that is helping society get to a better place or hurting it? So it's really hard to say. And I think there is a lot about third wave feminism that is strong and it is empowering and it is valuable to give women confidence and for women to be empowered about their own trajectory and their own destiny and to really grab hold of that. But I think fundamentally, our society really loses something when we don't place that onus on people, when we don't place that onus on society to change, on men to change, right? To stop stop being so superficial and for women to sort of 
step back a little bit in some ways, right? And I know that's a little bit controversial to say, and I'm not even exactly 100% sure where to place that, right? Because I think fundamentally, this is a society problem. And I think fundamentally, this is much more a male problem. But I also think that it is not empowering for women to do certain things. And as much as we might want to tell ourselves that it is, we might want to say that we're doing it for ourselves, right? And what's also interesting is the author sort of acknowledges that she also falls into these limitations, right? And I acknowledge that I too fall into these limitations, but I think it's bad. I think it's bad for society and I think it's bad for me and I think it's bad for men and I I think all of these things need to be addressed and need to come first and I think fundamentally this movie not only doesn't address that but I think kind of steps us back a little bit. One thing that I do want to say though is that along with the idea of third wave feminism is just a more general approach and attitude in our society at large which I think has a lot of very positive elements to it. it. It relates to the fact that somebody like Netta Barzilai could win the Eurovision competition and be so embraced, which is just like, in general, our society has gotten so much better at embracing difference, embracing diversity, whether that is in regards to gender or sexual orientation or minorities being more prominent in, in media and culture. Like, I think there's been a lot of improvements. Overall, we're in a much better place than I think we were in the past. I think that's true, but I also think that really what we want to do is get to a place where when Nata Barzilai wins, she doesn't say, thank a- <laughs> you for celebrating diversity. Thank you for looking different. Thank you for embracing me, right? Where it's just sort of understood that anyone could win a singing contest. Right. It reminds me of a really funny line from uh, Amy Schumer's stand-up routine. So I tweet out this photo of myself, okay? I'm, in, I'm holding coffee, I'm topless in just underwear, and it goes viral. Like, it was everywhere. Every, every news show, every website. And that's when I learned the word you don't want people to use when a nude photo of you goes viral. Brave? Um... <laughs> imagine you take your clothes off in front of someone for the first time and they're just like damn you look mad brave right now all right that's our show thank you all so much for listening please as always if you have not yet subscribed please do so on itunes and please rate us five stars it really helps other listeners find us and of course we want to continue the conversation either by email talking podcast at gmail.com or on our facebook page which is really where the action happens or who do we have to thank for this week we have to thank drive-in productions for sponsoring our show and for letting us record in their gorgeous amazing studio and we have to thank triple threat trio featuring rage brigade they are the official band of talking talkless and they gave us our theme song bye bye